I'm motivated to try to have as much impact on the world as I can and try to do it in a way that's as beneficial as possible. And, you know, I think this topic of workforce efficiency, effectiveness, helping people to get ahead, and the mission that I feel inside of me that it's going to lead to multiple companies. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Today I have Jason Radson. He's the CEO of Movil and a very experienced entrepreneur. Uh, um, it's going to be a great conversation today. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me on. Tell us a little bit about your background story before you start Movil. Like, let's talk a little bit about your what you have done. Have you done before? Well, serial founder, uh, entrepreneur. I've I've been part of scaling up some companies, particularly in the gig economy space. I was at Uber as one of the launchers and regional managers in the U.S. I was chief operating officer at 99 Taxis in Brazil for that big scale up and exit. Uh, we sold the company to Didi Shushing for a million bucks a couple of years ago. I've been part of Rappi and sort of the early setup, international expansion, growth, growth marketing, and helping out those guys. Uh, and Movo is really... It started originally to solve the frontline worker problem, uh, figuring out labor shortages, figuring out how to reallocate resources in different industries. And as I like to put it, it was really, you know, what's next for the Uber driver was sort of the problem that we originally put to ourselves uh, when we were starting the company. So, so tell me more about how you come up with the idea for Movo, like how you found that problem. And because again, yeah. all the experience in the gig economy, but like how, <laughs> totally. how did you find that problem and you figure out it was worth solving? Well, there was a tension in the gig economy because, you know, I think as much as we talked about economic opportunity that we were providing, and we did, don't get me wrong, I do think the gig economy was mostly good for the gig companies, uh, more so than for the gig worker. And I think there's just an old, you know, I, I like to think of it as a, an old rule of thumb of platforms, which is you got to be good for everybody. You got to find win wins or win-win-wins if you're a two-sided, three-sided marketplace. And so that was that was the idea is like we left a lot of opportunity for bigger wins for the workforce on the table when we were doing ride sharing and delivery. Okay, so, so and you want to solve that problem. You want the worker to also get more of the real world, not only just the company. Exactly. And, and how do you go about solving that problem with mobile? Well, I think I think the starting point was we looked at it and said, well, the, the thing about drivers, and there was a lot, if you think about sort of the PR and whatnot in the gig economy about how everybody wanted flexibility. And, you know, there's something there, but it's a little bit of a false flag in a sense. People want some flexibility, but what they want is fairly dependable earnings so that they can, you know, have the kind of salary that can support a family and that can help, you know, their family get ahead and, and raise their living standards. And that, you know, that doesn't mean picking up 10 hours 
randomly throughout the the day and night, it means a fairly stable job and stable income. So, you know, the first starting point was like, where do we, where can we apply the technology and some of the playbooks of the gig economy to places that have more robust jobs and more robust career paths? And kind of where that naturally leads you is to manufacturing. Manufacturing logistics is where we started. Logistics is awesome. The challenge with logistics is it's a very kind of broad industry with very few really great jobs, a lot, a lot of entry-level jobs, warehouse worker jobs, very few jobs that pay much more than, you know, minimum wage or one and a half times minimum wage. Manufacturing, we liked a lot better because there were simply more rungs on the ladder. There was more richness there. There was more career pathing possible. Um, so that's kind of how we started. We started helping clients in manufacturing logistics when we first started the company. Okay. So you talk about you brought the playbooks from the gig economy to that market. What are those playbooks? Like, talk to me more about like, what are the things that you help them do better? Yeah. Yeah. So very broadly speaking, I think there's just sort of, you know, if you look at and, and there's a lot of SaaS product out there. A lot of people talk about, you know, labor marketplaces. You hear marketplace thrown around. I think what really distinguishes or my definition of marketplace and what distinguishes a, a really massive online marketplace is, is real time and the sense that, you know, real time and there's a lot of peer to peer interaction and there's a lot of interaction across both sides of the marketplace. So as we looked at it, it was you kind of want to bring the whole tech stack of a gig marketplace into this traditional part of the economy. So that kind of means you have to re sort of re-envision HR software and operations software. I like to use the metaphor that it's more like a massive multiplayer online game because it has so much of that richness. It's all in real time. It's got maps, you know, you're sort of monitoring, you've got a ton of real time BI and analytics running on top of it. There's a lot of messaging inherent in it. And so we started to build that tech stack and put that directly into these types of clients. And we were just lucky, like our founding, one of our key founding moments was like we started, we started the company in earnest in January of 2020. And we were right out of the gate working on a deal with Amazon and the deal closed in March of 2020. And so, you know, we got a ton of learning from that relationship. We got a ton of exposure and, you know, we're able to sort of develop out a lot of the playbooks and, and apply the playbooks. And the playbooks don't apply directly uh, from the gig economy, but they're sort of in the same family, in the same key as, as the playbooks of the gig economy. And how did you guys got Amazon as a customer? That's amazing. Like your first customer is Amazon. So like how you go about closing that deal and, and bringing them on board? I think it was really challenging. So the labor market and manufacturing logistics in 2020 and early 2020 was in that, you know, kind of pre-pandemic place where we didn't really have enough resources in the economy and frontline work, but it wasn't super pronounced. It was just generally hard. And so I think it was, you know, I think any founder probably would have just looked at geographies that were hard. You kind of want to, when you're I think in, in the HR space, you want to be working in markets that are challenging, or at least 
that's how my brain works. And yeah. I think that's a lot of how a lot of founders sort of see it. You want to go to where the problems are. You know, as you looked across the country, there were already some markets that were kind of flashing yellow, flashing red. And then when we got into, we were working on a deal. And then when we got into the pandemic, we, like the deal sailed through in like two seconds. So there was just a lot of pull. And then we spent a big part of the pandemic with, uh, you know, something like uh, 90% overbooking rate, 100% overbooking rate, meaning like we literally had something like 200 million of deals signed deals and just no way to possibly fill them because we were a early stage company with just a little bit of capital just getting going. Like it got to be a really crazy place, of course, in manufacturing and logistics. Our timing, you know, was really good or really bad, depending on how you look at it. It was a very interesting time to be starting a company. Yeah, so the pandemic, it looks like, worked as a, as a major tailwind for you guys. As, it was, yeah. As you're talking to Amazon about this problem, that's a problem, but the problem becomes huge with the pandemic, and they're like, yeah, we, we're going we're gonna to help you solve. But how do you got in the room with Amazon? Like, did you know anyone inside? Like, how do you start the conversation? Yeah, yeah. I think we practice uh, sort of founder, founder, team-led sales. So, you know, pretty much our whole book of business is, is people that we know or friends of friends or people that board members or syndicate members, investors introduce us to, or, you know, potentially their investors, the LPs introduce us to. So, you know, that's, that's really been for most of our company's history. That's how we've built most of our sales. And, you know, it was, the pandemic was crazy. We had a reputation very, very early on that started to solidify around being sort of the team that could find workers and access talent markets when nobody else could. And we spoke a little bit or, you know, a little bit to your question earlier. I think the the playbook of the gig economy is if you think about it, every Uber team, you know, during the first years of launching, we had to sort of drop into cities one at a time and go and hire 5,000 people a week. You know, or more if, you know, we were looking, if our target was a 50,000 driver pool, uh, which it kind of is in any major city, you know, so you've got to, you've got to get there really quickly. And that means, you know, coming in with sort of a full stack of playbooks from, you know, community engagement and a lot of ground game and how you engage the local workforce to like dominating an online advertising to, you know, kind of full on automation of talent acquisition. And so, you know, it's sort of what we did during the early pandemic was sort of implement that same kind of thing in manufacturing logistics. That's amazing. So like your superpower was to come and be able to bring a bunch of works very quick, quickly for this industry that now need the, the workers. How did you fund this, this venture? Uh, we bootstrapped in 2020 and we started getting, you know, and the business per se was profitable and we started getting a lot of inbound uh, late 2020, we were starting to get calls like, you guys are working on the warehouse worker problem in the middle of the pandemic. This is amazing, you know, and, you know, it was, it was a tailwind. It was, you know, you can't, you know, sometimes uh, luck is just luck, you know, and uh, so we had, we had a ton of inbound in, in late 2020. And then we, uh, we closed a pretty significant seed in 2021 in a couple of tranches. We, we took in a little over 8 million bucks uh, in our series seed. 
that's an amazing story. So basically, you didn't go after the investors. The investor come after you. You're like initially, yeah, we were, and we were in a spot where we'd been self fund. You know, we kind of bootstrapped. We had, uh, you know, just a little bit of initial start capital, and uh, you know, we were we're sort of living hand to mouth and. I think the the challenge too is just like working capital when you're when you're that bootstrapped, and you know it was it was it all the initial interest was all inbound. We weren't even we weren't looking to raise. We weren't talking to anybody about raising, and then sort of fall winter 2020 when investors started reaching out. That's amazing. Uh, it, it's a great power move on your guys' side. Let's build a product. But how do you fund it first? Like, where did the money come from for you guys to bootstrap the venture? You know, from just internally and, and sort of not paying ourselves and, you know, the, the usual stuff that an early team does and, you know, uh, charging clients. Um, and that I think is, <laughs> it seems unusual in the venture backed world, but in the small business world, that's what everybody does, right? You, uh, sell some clients and, and we were no different. We sold our first clients in 2019. We had a couple of small clients. I say small, but, you know, uh, to others, they wouldn't be small. They're small in terms of ARR and, and whatnot. But we had a couple of convention clients. We had CES, the big convention. We had SEMA, the auto parts guys. That's uh, another convention that's almost 200,000, or it used to be almost 200,000 participants. Um, we were working with NASCAR and the Speedway organization. So we had a few of these kind of events and things, and we were charging clients. You know, we were providing a service and tech and we were charging clients for that. And, you know, you're sort of in a space there where, you know, you've got a little bit of cash flow and it's enough for the first couple of hires. And, you know, that's, that's really, it was super bootstrapped, super hand to mouth for the first year plus. I like the joke that I have been running profitable business before. That was the cool thing to do. <laughs> That's kind of like exactly <laughs> right? that so but what was the Nothing point? Nothing means. <laughs> now, yeah. now it's cool to run profitable, sustainable business. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Economy. I'm like, it's cyclical. <laughs> Every 10 years, it becomes cool again. <laughs> like I have been doing this before it was cool. So, yeah, yeah. but what's the percent of your, uh, of your revenue that was service versus software? Because uh, we know that to, to be value as a, there's a software business. So like if you're going to go raise money and everything, you don't want it to be over 20% of your revenue in services. So so where were you guys then? And, and you were able to keep adjusting as you kept growing the company. Uh, walk me through that. We started as a labor marketplace. And so in labor marketplace, it's the other way around. It's tech-enabled services. So we were 80-20 and we're headed to, to 2080. We're sort of in that transition now is the SaaS business is starting to eclipse the service business. But, uh, you know, when you have a really strong tech enabled services business, there's a lot of revenue in that business because, of course, you're, you know, you're providing services at 20, 50, 40 dollars an hour, 80 dollars an hour. And at volume, that revenue just eclipses, you know, the SaaS the PEPM or whatever your your monthly ARPU is on the on the SaaS side. So that's been it's been part of the transition, but that's, you know, as said, like we haven't really discussed, but sort of as the, you know, as the company evolves, we're we're now becoming a much larger company than we ever could be on the services side because of the growth of SaaS and, you know, all of the things that start to kick in when you start to scale as SaaS. 
so your strategy was to be a tech-enabled company, do 80% service, 20% software, yeah. bring the revenue in. But then as you're like, we need to really grow this now, then you move more and more into like, I want to be more and more of a SaaS over a tech enabler. And that's what allow you to scale. And I also, exactly. it's what allow you to do with outside capital until like they were like, hey, please, can you give you money? And then you're like, sure, I'll take it. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and it's really easy to sort of like reverse engineer, you know, and I, and I wouldn't say like we had that, you know, crystalline strategy from the get go. A lot of this has been trial and error and experimentation, but we knew the problem we needed to solve. And that, that was initially that was the malfunctioning of the labor marketplace, the labor market. And, and we, you know, that's where we started. And as it's evolved, what we've seen is, you know, definitely the economy's kind of moved on, right? Like it's less about now, you know, the frontline worker problem is, is less about are there enough people to pack boxes at Amazon? And it's more, how do we solve the long term deficit in the economy of field engineers, of, you know, clean tech guys in the energy transformation of nurses? across the healthcare system of home healthcare workers, you know, these really large of teachers and of adjunct professors, you know, we're talking several million workers that are, that were short in the U S and, you know, those are problems that fundamentally they're not a gig worker problem. They're, they're more of an internal functioning of that labor marketplace. And that's, you know, we, about a year, maybe a little more, about 14 months ago, made the decision to start to create UX and create, create additional functionality around our platform so that we could we could offer our platform as a service to any large employer. And that's really been the big transformation. And we, we have some really large clients on our platform uh, with thousands and thousands of workers every day that are using it for all kinds of things, for managing HR cycles, but, you know, less about compliance and really more about just internal functioning, scheduling optimization, scheduling flexibility, internal mobility or, you know, labor and worker mobility, career mobility, career opportunities, surfacing those kinds of things. You know, I like to refer to it as sort of there's, there's sort of there's an there's an AI problem that we're solving that we're we're moving up on in the industry. And that's really this deployment of the workforce and in the country. And that's, you know, also a big part of why we're really focusing on large companies. Not that small companies don't have issues there, but they don't have the kind of scale, you know, they don't have 32 warehouses in a geography. They don't have, you know. 200 retail stores in a geography. They don't, they kind of don't have the levers uh, that a large company has. And so, hence our, our, our focus on large. There's so much to unpack here. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> the first thing, like, looks like what you, what was working for you internally as you're like growing your tech enabling service, you turn to a software so other people can do exactly what you were doing by themselves. And so, here's the tools, here, here's the things that we did at scale. But these other people, you realize they have to be big organizations. And how is the process of onboarding those big organizations and, and helping them implement the systems on your system? Yeah, it's not it's not as bad as you would think. There's definitely change management, but the steps are are pretty straightforward. You basically 
have to onboard the shifts at the company or at the hospital or medical group. And then you have to onboard the workforce. Uh, the workforce onboarding, we've got it super streamlined. Basically, the professional gets a link that is specific to the white label instance of that, of that employer. And then, you know, depending on whether we're porting over or beginning with the employment file, otherwise they can input the data that we need to create the employment file. And then uh, they're basically associated to their shifts and they can, they can start working inside of the app in their normal working environment. We've got it really kind of productized. We're starting uh, some limited distribution partners and more companies that are sort of in tune with that kind of change management and dealing with some of the nuts and bolts of onboarding a company to a new platform. But, you know, that said, it's a pretty light and easy process. It's a one or two week process for us. But are you planning on bringing like implementation partners or are you planning on like always do the implementation yourself? Because I, I kind of... I think both. Yeah. Because yeah, I kind of feel like in that space where like going big enterprise, the implementation, it's as much as you can make it super easy when you're softer. Like, because if you think about Salesforce and like this other SaaS companies that went huge enterprise uh, or even HubSpot, there's always like a partners and someone that helps with implementation. So you guys are going that direction too. I think, I think it's important. We are. And I think it's, I think it's important, you know, that we have a very short kind of time to money because we can. I mean, you can, you can be an extremely large company. You could put a hundred thousand workers on our platform and we could be up and running in a week. And, you know, depending on what kind of the beginning state is, you can be realizing a lot of that value really quickly. If we're able to make you 10, 20% more efficient in deployment of your frontline workforce, you know, multiplied times a hundred thousand paychecks, you know, we start to generate value really, really quickly. So I don't want to, I don't want to detract from that. But same time, there are some companies that just, if they're not working with an SI or with an integration partner, everything's going to be hard internally. And I want to be open to them, you know, and their potential needs. And, and I think, you know, some of the areas are, have a lot of change management potentially. You know, if we're talking about automating a bunch of HR operations and things like that, where, you know, it could be helpful, even if the implementation is done quickly, to have some consulting support for a month or two to make sure that all the change management goes through flawlessly. That's amazing. So changing gears a little bit here. I'm actually looking at your LinkedIn right now. And you have you are someone that have a lot of experience. You mentioned a little bit. But after going through Uber, being the COO at 99, and and like doing so much and scaling a lot of companies and going to exits, why did you decide to start a business? Uh, what was kind of like the, I want to go do this, the zero to one stage? I think, you know, everybody's a, you know, a little bit different. I think in my own personal case, I'm motivated to try to have as much impact on the world as I can and try to do it in a way that's as beneficial as possible. And I think this topic of workforce efficiency, effectiveness, helping people to get ahead and the mission that I feel inside of me, that is just, it, it's going to lead to multiple companies. I think one of the things that a lot of us experience, if you're a founder and you work for somebody else, I think you're often, you're 
it, it's rare that you're going to be able to sort of build the company in the way that you exactly want. Uh, there's always some compromise. And, you know, if you're not a founder, there's a lot more compromise. So, you know, I think I have wanted to build a company in the future of workspace for quite some time. And it took me a few years to get there. I was very involved in ride sharing and delivery. And I was finally kind of able to peel away. 2019 was a little bit of a transitional year for me. I was very heavily involved in Latin America at the same time we were starting to bootstrap Movo. So that was sort of how, how we got here. So, so you decided to go like because of the impact that, that you believe uh, you could make in that space and in the world. I kind of see that. Like I feel like most people will start entrepreneurship because they want to make money. They want to take care of themselves. And then you get to a point where like, now you already have the money enough to take care of yourself. But you start to realize the experience that you have and the impact that you can have in the world. And it's actually amazing when you have people with experience starting business because second, third time founders are more successful and they can do more. Like and, and older founders are more successful. So I, I kind of like... I'm the same way. I feel like even if I got super rich, I don't want to just be the investor. I want to be the builder because that's where like where you can do the the hugest impact, you know. And yeah, hundred percent. I you know, and I you know, for many of the same reasons, I I often you know advise people starting out to go work for an experienced founder because because it is it's you know or. I, I personally, I've made so many mistakes in my life, you know, and, uh, you know, I feel like uh, the next generation of founders coming up, I want to save them that aggravation. Uh, I want them to be able to learn from my experiences and, and my successes and failures. And, you know, then you get to a point where you are, you, you feel like given the right market and the right Insight on that market, I feel like I have many more companies left in me. Right now, we're building in an amazing space. We're bringing AI to one of the biggest workforce problems in the world at massive scale. I feel like, you know, we're, we're going to see how much impact we can have. And, uh, you know, if uh, 10 years from now, I'm thinking about a different company, I'll, you know, be a founder. I, I doubt very much I'm going to be sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. I think it's amazing for the world uh, and because you keep getting better and you keep making sure to increase your impact. I mean, I'm not to judge, but I feel like when an entrepreneur that went for a couple rounds and has been successful, just retire, it's such a big loss uh, for the rest of the community because that person is not there building. And I love what you say. And that's the advice that I give people all the time too. Like uh, sometimes People come to me and they're like, hey, how, how do I become well off? And I'm like, hey, the easiest way is to find an experienced founder and go work for him and try to be a key player and, and try to be a co-founder to that guy. Learn from him. And then from there, you can go and you, you can then be the number one. But I believe like being the number two, the number three is the easiest way to build wealth when you are starting. <laughs> you know, then you go next because... You, you can learn from someone else that it's already there. And actually, I have a lot of friends that, that became very wealth like that. Even like getting companies into startups in later stage, but getting a bunch of equity. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. And I think I think if you look at if you look at the mafias, you know, the quote unquote mafias these days, they're different than previous mafias. And, you know, of course, kind of the original one was the PayPal mafia. And a lot of those guys were, let's call them more or less peers. 
And I think if you look at today, if you look at sort of the Uber group or the Rappi group, two of the strongest ones in the Americas, it's a lot of folks who had, let's call them general management assignments at one of those two companies, which is really the ultimate boot camp for becoming a founder. And you get, you know, exposure to everything from government relations to growth marketing to product development and everything in between. And that's, I think, why those two ecosystems in particular have been so successful at generating founders. Yeah, for sure. And just for, for people that listen to the show to get familiar with the mafia concept, the first thing was the PayPal mafia. A lot of the people that were like part of the PayPal founding team, they went and they built a lot of companies that we know that were very successful. They built LinkedIn, they built YouTube, uh, they built Yelp. And so the concept of mafia is that a team that's a founding team of like one startup, they leave and they all become founders of other companies and then they keep growing and they keep learning. So like you kind of create your own, the mafia there, just, just to get the term familiar. <laughs> So what is like the first oh shit moment that comes to mind from the early days of Movo? We had a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest was the pandemic and sort of the breaking wave of the pandemic. And um, we all got sick kind of around the same time. And, you know, at the time we had a lot of interactions with workers and it was just, I think, you know, just like being exposed to that very first wave and then trying to figure out what it was going to mean. And we went very quickly in sort of middle of March 2020 from, you know, oh shit, we're all sick. Oh shit, everything's closing down to, oh my God, the phone's ringing off the hook. And it was really weird because all this demand was coming. Same time, there was all this workforce displacement and we were we were basically working seven days a week and we were seeing this whole wave of some incredibly skilled people just looking for any kind of work on the platform, which was, you know, and you were people with mechanical engineering degrees and 20 year engineering careers looking for warehouse work because they weren't sure when their company was going to open back up and it was it was clear that everybody still needed food and the warehouses and kind of the supply chain backbone of the country still needed to function. A lot of just really interesting things happening during those weeks, those March and into April and, and even into the first part of May when it was still relatively unclear where stuff was going to land. Yeah, I remember like that had an effect on my business too. We were growing, uh, was but at the same time, everything around you, it doesn't look great. Like you said, there's people that have a degree. And so like, I remember at the time, I kind of like, I, I didn't want to show too much that we were growing because we were growing a lot, but everyone else was just struggling because the technology field, like now everyone was trying, they need more technology to, to do stuff. So, so that's definitely a moment where we're trying to find that balance. Okay, now we have this opportunity to grow, but we also have everything that's happening uh, around the world. It was a bad, definitely an oh shit moment for tech. Yeah, definitely. And I think very initial days, like, does this mean we're all bankrupt? Uh, you know, should we be... Should we be trying to find, uh, you know, food? I mean, things were so <laughs> disrupted for those weeks. And how do you think that the event affect the workforce? Because what I have been personally seeing, I'd love to hear your opinion. It's like 
more and more people don't want to do jobs that you cannot do remote. But those people are very important. You know, like I saw more people transition. Uh, and of course, now we have a, <laughs> tech, a crisis in tech and there's layoffs and everything. But like, I just feel like people don't want to do that uh, that work anymore. Or like even very important works like yeah. going to med school or become nurses because of that uh, that scenario. So how how do you see the impact of that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's interesting, you know, both like the impact of the pandemic and and sort of attitudes towards frontline work, but then also what's coming down the pike with LLMs and sort of, you know, this emerging wave of automation and AI. Cuz I think I think what what is going to happen is a lot of sort of these entry-level white-collar jobs and remote work is going to just get automated away. I think it's going to be very disruptive. And I think one of the few bright spots on the demand side are going to be these frontline jobs. If you look at sort of, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics, sort of government perspective on the labor market, all of the real bright spots are all in-person work for the next 10 years. You know, and it's like I said, some of the things I mentioned earlier, it's, you know, adjunct professors, secondary school teachers, nurses, home health care energy transformation, you know, kind of clean tech workers, field engineers, robotics, industrial robotics, technicians and engineers, telecommunications, field personnel. Like those are all the high growth jobs, uh, plumbers and electricians, you know, kind of our skilled trades. And those are becoming six figure jobs. Um, so I think it's, we're in this weird spot where, <laughs> People all want to work from home and have a nice, you know, job sitting behind a monitor, but those jobs are going to become more and more scarce as the other jobs aren't. So I don't know. I think we we end up retraining a lot of people. And I think the other thing, you know, clearly if you're, you know, and there's there's been sort of uh, a changing attitude towards secondary education and, and tertiary education. I think if I were looking at it these days, I'd be looking at those particular roles. And and even two or three years ago, we were telling everybody, go, you know, go get a computer science degree. I don't know that I would be as strong on that advice anymore, you know, as as so many kind of, of, of basic entry-level coding jobs. Like, I just don't see the career path being as clear as it was, you know, two or three years ago, you know, versus nursing school, you know, versus robotics technician work, sort of the mechatronics path. I think those paths are are really strong and will continue to be so. Different market for sure. I think the other big one too is is immigration. And, you know, we have experimented a lot on the H2B front, you know, sort of skilled labor and importing skilled labor. And our program in the US is is tiny. It's it's thirty-five thousand or so people a semester. And they have a bunch of seasonal constraints on it and everything. And I think we need more of a guest worker program. We should have a skilled worker program, you know, a couple hundred thousand, somewhere in the quarter million people a semester, really relax the uh, seasonal constraints on it. I think we should just be more open-minded to more broad immigration uh, on a number of these jobs where we're just not we're not able to solve it domestically. I mean, the alternative is we're going to have declining levels in our hospitals because we don't have enough nurses and 
you know, we can't afford to pay where the market price will end up being. You know, I think that's where we're headed. We're headed towards nurses making a quarter million bucks a year <laughs> if this continues. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, on some level, it's got to, we got to loosen up supply, I think. That's such a, a great perspective from the change on what's important, the change from blue collar to white collar, front line, like wh- what you, where you go to school. like, And, and I believe most people are going to take a little bit longer to realize that change because uh, it's hard to see that change. You that have the experience, boots on the ground, you're like, hey, people, this is changing. Uh, remote job is not going to have as much. So that's a great perspective. And in the immigration that you brought up, we immigrant myself, I'm from Brazil. I remember when the economy was super hot before the pandemic and nobody could hire. And I was stuck with my wife. That's super easy to solve. Uh, we can start with everyone here on <laughs> a student visa that can work. Just let these people work, <laughs> you know, from there, totally. open, open up and, and let people in because we need people here. And there's all these countries that people don't have jobs. And because we were like, you go to the, to Wendy's, you go to like restaurants, there was nobody could hire those frontline work. And I feel like the problem is going to keep coming up yeah, unless, we solve. <laughs> unless yeah. we solve, unless we do <laughs> right. anything about right. it, you know. And even some of these trends of the pandemic, I mean, you know, aside from like short term people getting COVID, people not wanting to go to work, people retiring, but, uh, you know, you look at, particularly like smaller cities in the U.S., there just aren't, there aren't enough humans for these jobs. You know, it's just structural and, and it's, you know, less people entering the workforce, more people retiring long-term, long-term. It's not gonna get any better. And we don't, you know, will we want to pay those prices? Will we want to be paying people 30 bucks an hour to work at McDonald's? You know, or do we want to do something on the other end and and allow people to work who would really benefit and love to have the job? Yeah, and uh, and also another thing, like I, I see McDonald's and those jobs as an entry level. People are gonna grow, so you have to let more people into the into the funnel so so they can grow. So yeah, yeah, th- that's an amazing topic to discuss, and it's it's all related to the space that you are. But going back to your business, <laughs> <laughs> sure, what is kind of like a very good decision that you made in the early days? that you could share with us? I think the one of the key decisions, and, and it was it was 100% intuition. We didn't do any like major study or experimentation around it. But when we first started building product, we built it with minimum worker friction in mind. So we sort of, we built our mobile app in a way that workers would want to use it and find it intuitive and find it kind of hassle-free. And that has just paid dividends on top of dividends because, you know, I think one of our key positions in the market these days is we're like one of the only HR solutions, if you see us sort of broadly in that category, that actual frontline workers really like using. Everybody else sees it as kind of a hassle. If you look at kind of the traditional ERP, payroll, you know, cloud services, cloud HR services, Workers see that generally as hassle software, it's compliance software, it's that, you know, crappy stuff that the HR department always tries to foist on me or get me to do these extra to-dos. And mobile was never that. We were always just this popular, cool app people liked using and it found it really easy. So I think that's one of the biggest ones. And it probably comes again from your background and your knowledge from building apps like Uber and like bigger apps before 99. Uh, and, and how about a big blender that you made in the early days? Oh God, so many, too many to count. 
I don't know. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> so, so, so many. I, I think one of the hardest things, it, it's not a, bl- a blunder per se, or it's not a point blunder, but I think, I think when you're disrupting an industry, it's really hard to find the right balance between as you're starting to scale the team. We hired a lot of people from traditional industry, from manufacturing and logistics, and we had a really, really hard time just sort of integrating them and sort of getting the company culture right early on. And and we were coming from a spot, if I had to put a label on our company culture, I would say we're more like Uber's field operations culture, which was, you know, a, you know, and whatever press and whatever sort of headquarter, you know, New York Times headlines and whatever. But he put that aside Fundamentally, what Uber did really, really well, and later we had a Brazilian version of this in 99 Taxis, but we were a heads-down team that was there to help the city. And we had just this real kind of work ethic of like, we are good working class people trying to make the world a better place through hard work. And we really had that from the very early days in our company. And, you know, as we started to grow Movo and it kind of expand and things, it was really hard to sort of like hire people from traditional warehouse environment and have them fit into that environment and traditional companies. And we hired from, you know, some traditional software companies and it just, it really didn't have that tech plus working class sensibility. So we really struggled with that. I would say all throughout 2020 in particular, as we we tra- kind of got the team right and kind of got the team dynamic right and grew that culture. But that's that one's hard. And I think I think particularly, like I said, when you're trying to disrupt in a very traditional space to get that get that mix of of tech and the rest of your company culture just right. But that's a great example that I feel like any founder can connect with as you start growing. Most of your blunders is going to be around hiring about like yeah. trying to try, <laughs> trying to keep your culture in the right place trying to bring the, the right person at the right time maybe you were like this person that had a lot of experience and work with this huge team and i tell him that he, you only have two people and a small budget and we don't throw people under the bus over here and, and then like it's very <laughs> right, different right. so but that's again a lesson for any founder it, your most of your blunders will be around hiring the wrong people when you're trying to scale and that's where experience plays a big role because when you have the second, the third, you're still going to make mistakes, but, but you're quicker to see and you're quicker to act. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's, and you're going to have to, and we were, we were in a mode there on the services side too. We we're growing a hundred percent a month through a lot of those quarters. And there's a real pressure internally to just like, God, can we go steal a team from the competitor? And, you know, can we go steal a team from traditional industry? And you start all of a sudden, you know, kind of pull your head up and 80% of the company just got there in the last couple of months. And it just gets, it gets hard. It gets hard to scale that quickly when you've got that many humans involved. And I think it gets, it gets easier because as you get later into the company life cycle, you know, now we're in a spot where as we scale, 90% 90% of scaling, 95% of scaling is just tech. And it's it's just ramping up on a very scalable platform. 
it's not as manual as it is when you're in very early days and every bit of expansion costs a lot of human effort. So, you know, and I kind of take that example across multiple companies. It's the same in Uber. Early scaling was very manual, landing lots of launchers. Later stage scaling was landing a, a kind of more senior team to quickly implement playbooks, ramp up all the algorithmic and automated processes that you could. And so I think that I think there's a real tendency when you just have that kind of crazy product market fit right out of the gate to to make a lot of hiring mistakes. Yeah, for sure. And another insight that I have from this conversation and listen to you, it's like the posts that you have in the culture that again for me is it, like showing an experienced founder building a business because first time founders they don't understand how important culture is. And cultures, I like to repeat, it's a strategy to breakfast <laughs> for breakfast, you know. So like having that post, like where is our culture going? Why is it not going how I want? Again, it's very important and shows the, the things that you learn from the from the from the other companies that you work at and you understood how important that would be to to keep your company growing and to keep your company scaling, you know. Hundred percent. And skills and a lot of the things we think about in hiring, like how much of a stretch is this and and whatnot. And you know, I think I think part of the challenge of disrupting in more, and we're later in the tech cycle, right? If you look at sort of mobile technology and even AI and a lot of the algorithmic approaches, we're relatively late in the cycle in the sense like we're going after fairly tr- traditional industries and traditional spaces. And so, you know, as you're growing your team, there are only so many people in the workforce who are both experienced in tech in HR transformation, for instance. So, you know, you kind of have to always make these compromises, like, where am I going to invest my time? Am I going to hire experienced HR people and teach them tech? Am I going to hire experienced tech people and teach them HR or frontline HR too, which is its own flavor of HR? So there are always those challenges. And when you are, when you're growing so fast, you... You have to hire people where it's a bigger stretch, you know, and you've got, as I was saying, less technology to kind of support them and automate them, give them that leverage. Another huge insight here, like business, a business is always, is always about making trade off. You're you're describing the trade offs you had to make to keep growing your company and how you fought about making those those trade offs. So how big is the company today? What can you share about number of employees, numbers of revenue? Like, what can you share about the size of the company? Yeah, I mean, very roughly speaking, we're at about a million bucks a month. Uh, from a revenue perspective, uh, we, on any given day, have about uh, 10,000 active workers on the platform using the platform all day in very general numbers. And we're looking to essentially uh, 3x before the end of this year and have a similar kind of growth next year. And how big is your team? We're fairly small. We're about 40 people on the core team, about half business and half uh, engineering. That's amazing. And if you could go back in time and meet yourself 2019 when you were starting this business, what would you tell yourself? Huh. I don't think I would do anything differently. I think I would. Uh, I would benefit from some of the experiments that we ran. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. Jason, thank you very much for coming to the show. I I think this has been an amazing content. I have just one final question before you go, and and I'd love you to also share where people can learn more about you. I always ask people to, what's a book that you recommend 
for any founder or anybody? Yeah, 100%. I think Kohler's valuation is a great one. If you don't have a finance background, even if you do have a finance background, I think it is full of analytical approaches for really kind of understanding what matters financially in a business. And it really applies at almost any any and every scale or size of business. That's an old McKinsey classic. You know, I think uh, lots, lots of us have kind of grown up using that book. Another one, uh, I always, always point people to, to Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm. Uh, I think anybody who's thinking about product market fit and you know, we tend to simplify in venture back startup land, you know, do you have product market fit? Don't you have product market fit? But, you know, what does that mean? And sort of what are the mechanics underneath product market fit? And he really gives you, you know, a wealth of experience and and sort of deeper understanding of the mechanics of of getting that product market fit. And then kind of almost more importantly, how do you bring it from your early kind of passionate early adopter clients to more broadly to a big, you know, massive market uh, for your product. And I think even if you're a founder and you're even just kind of like kicking around a business plan and haven't really decided to start something, it gives you a framework for sort of evaluating the quality of the business plan. Can I map this? Do I understand who my target buyer is? Do I understand how that will change and evolve over time and where this product fits, you know, in their world? I think that that book is is one of the most important ones you can read as a fan. It's amazing. Thank you for the recommendation. And, and where can people learn more about you and, and keep listening to you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Movo.co is our URL, is our, is our main company website. And, you know, by all means, you can find me on LinkedIn under my name, Jason Madison. Awesome. Again, thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you, Phil. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a real pleasure. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.